Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. Starting in verse 13, this is God's Word. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do, for him it is his. And so, Lord, with the words of my mouth, with the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning, be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and redeemer and Holy Spirit. We believe in you. And so empower this time. Soften and make receptive our hearts to Jesus in your word. Amen. Well, as we all approach the two-year anniversary of this global pandemic, it also means, as many of you know, that I am approaching the two-year anniversary of my dad's death from cancer. Uh, My dad was diagnosed with late-stage cancer in 2015. Um, At the time, I thought I only had five more weeks with him, let alone five more months, let alone five more years. So I had plenty of time in that five-year window to integrate his inevitable task. I had time to, to imagine what it would look like to sit beside him at his worst. I had plenty of time to imagine even his wake and his funeral. And that's what I did. I wrote a script, and I grieved it in advance. But nothing happened according to my script. The global pandemic sort of came along and went like this to my script. And tore it in the shreds. And so much of my grieving these past two years have been twofold. Not just the loss of my dad, which is enough, but the loss of a vision, the loss of a picture of the future that I had invested in. But nothing went according to my story. I think we all do this. We all want to write our story. And if we love others deeply, we want to write their stories too. And on the one hand, this is good. It's human. It's actually human to have a hopeful vision for our lives. But if we're not careful, we could soon anchor our okayness. Did you hear that? We anchor our okayness in that future vision. We put all of our okayness eggs into that basket that hasn't happened. 
Which means if we're not careful, we can start to play God who ultimately writes our series. Zach Eswine makes the observation that in America and in the 21st century, with all of our advancements, all of our technologies, every human being is going to be tempted to try and trade places with God. In classic theology, okay, only God is omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. That word omni means all. So only God is all-knowing. Only God is all-present. Only God is all-powerful. Only God knows everything, is everywhere at one time, has the power to do anything. And while humans are made in the image of God, which means, of course, we can truly know things, and we can be truly present with others, and yes, we have real agency to affect change. We are not omni, any of that. Any of it. But that's our temptation, isn't it? It's to live in that omni-world. It's the omni-temptation. To know it all. To sort of fix it all. To be present to everybody at any given time. Which is to say, we want to write our own stories. Because just think about the last, think about the last novel you read. And think about the author of that last novel that you read. This author is all-knowing. This author is all-present. This author is all-powerful to that story. She can do whatever she wants to your favorite character. <laughs> it's all in her hands. And we would love to do the same thing with our life, wouldn't we? And for our loved ones, wouldn't we? We want to write our own story. If we're honest, even those of us who love God and who believe deeply that God is the author of our life, sometimes we don't trust His story writing skills. That's the struggle. We would write our story differently or the story of others. Way differently. It's kind of like how the world felt during the Lost finale. Anybody watch that? I didn't watch it because I didn't make it past the first season, but I heard it didn't end the way you all wanted it to end. We were lost. Yes. Everyone said J.J. Abrams can start a good story, but he doesn't know how to end it. That's right. This is how we often feel about stories we read and watch. We think to ourselves, I would do it differently. And isn't that true of our life? And so I think that's why I'm right. The omni-temptation is very strong. We feel it every day. We want to be the authors of our story. We don't entrust God to write our story. We only trust ourselves. Well, scriptures have a phrase for this. The phrase is three words. Boasting in tomorrow. This is Proverbs 21, I'm sorry, 27, verse 1, verbatim. It says, do not boast in tomorrow. And it's basically the passage that we just read. Boasting in tomorrow is a particular posture toward the future. Isn't it? It's a functional confidence that the future is in our hands. And I say functional because we may not intellectually believe that the future is in our hands, but we function as if it is. We try to write our own story. And this usually shakes out in two different ways. Arrogance or anxiety. 
Arrogance and anxiety is kind of like the Toyota Camry and the Toyota Highlander. Okay, so very different on the outside, different exteriors, but the same engine, same inside. The same engine is a functional overconfidence about the future. And so on the one hand, we become anxious when that picture is largely negative and not going the way we want. Or, on the other hand, it becomes arrogant when our picture of the future is, is, is very positive. Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner calls arrogance and anxiety companion sins. They're best friends. Because they share a core assumption about life. I control the future. The story is in my hands. And it seems that of these two companion sins, the Highlander and the Camry, uh, the one that was causing issues in James's church was arrogance. Just look again at verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. So James, he pastored in and around Jerusalem, which was a commercial crossroads, like a New York City of the day for that world. And there were folks in his church who were saying, or brashly announcing, as Eugene Peterson paraphrases it, this is how things are going to go down. I will make it so. It's a largely optimistic posture towards their future. And so what is James correcting here in this text? Is it entrepreneurship? I don't think so. Is it making a profit? I don't think so. Is it planning? Not if I read Proverbs correctly. I don't think it's planning. What is it? What's wrong here? Well, it's their heart posture once again. Remember, James is a soul doctor. He goes to the depths. And it's the heart posture that is wrong. It's what's below the surface. It's the root sin of arrogance. They were boasting in their arrogance. So to boast in something is to trust in something. Isn't that true? To boast in something is to trust in something. Your okayness in life is your boast. What makes you okay in life is your boast. It makes you confident. It makes you okay. It just makes you okay. <laughs> what, is, what makes you okay? That's your boast. And the problem here is that they were boasting or trusting in their own plan making. They were boasting or trusting. Their okayness was thrown into a particular optimistic vision of the future that they had. And again, as I said, it could be a pessimistic future too. They were writing their story. Their okayness was rooted in it. And we do the same thing. In fact, we might read verse 13 and we might think to ourselves, like, what is the big deal about this statement? But James hears it and warning sirens are sort of like firing off in his heart and his mind. He's, he sees us, he sees danger. He uses the word sin and he uses the word evil. In verse 16. And he rings this alarm with largely three reminders. He reminds us in his church of our limits, 
our lifespan, and ultimately our board. And that's how we're going to approach this text. If you're like me, we need these reminders all the time. And if you're here this morning, you need these reminders today. First, James reminds us of our limits. Look again at verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. And then verse 14 says, yet you do not know. That's like, drop the mic right there. You don't know. Yet you do not know. You say you know, but you do not know. There's a sort of simple, irrefutable logic in, in James here. It's like how only one number fits in the Sudoku square. You know, there's only one. That's how James is talking about this. He's like, we don't know what tomorrow will bring. We as humans are inherently limited in our knowledge about the future, so it follows that we cannot write our story. That's just the facts. Many of you might be looking at the weather forecast for the next week because you're doing some travel on the interstate. For Thanksgiving, a couple of days ago, I did that, and I checked, and I saw a bunch of apocalyptic articles on my feed. I don't know about you, I saw things like, mega Midwest, you know, squall is sort of going to unleash havoc in the Midwest, or something to that effect. And I actually clicked on the article, and I actually read the article, and it was careful to stay, like, right at the beginning. We don't actually know <laughs> that this is going to happen. And then that's true about the weather, which gives us so many clues, you know, how it will behave. How much more true is it of our life? We are not omniscient. We are inherently limited. And the sooner we can embrace our limits, as Pete Scazzaro would put it, embrace our limits, as opposed to hate them, or as opposed to deny them, or as opposed to fight them, or ignore them, the sooner we embrace our limits, the better. We don't know what tomorrow will be. Let's say that together. Let's just say we don't know together. This would be a good spiritual formation exercise. Ready? We'll just say these three words. We don't know. Ready? One, two, three. We, we don't, don't know. know. We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. Number two, we need to be reminded of our lifespan. Look at the second half of verse 14. What is your life, James says? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So James defines our life with a poetic image. Mist. This word picture in those days often referred to the steam that rises from something that's boiling. Or in today's terms, just imagine that first cup of coffee in the morning or that first cup of tea in the morning. That mist that rises from your mug, James here is using to define our life. Did you know Solomon in Ecclesiastes uses the same exact image? Some of your translations say meaningless. Well, the actual Hebrew word there is pebble, which means vapor, mist. And Solomon is saying, everything in this fallen world east of Eden is like mist. What is true about mist? Well, you can't herd mist. You can't control mist. And this seems to be James' big point. Mist doesn't hang around very long. There's a finitude to mist. 
So my wife, she bought me a Christmas gift last year called the Ember Mug. Do you know about this thing? The Ember Mug? I saw it at Target the other day, so it's out there. Uh, maybe you have heard of it. Basically, if Apple were to design a mug, it would be the Ember Mug. <laughs> if they got tired of making watches and iPhones and decided to design a coffee mug, Ember would be their mug. The iPhone of mugs, almost. For one, it looks great. But more importantly, it's designed to keep your coffee at the perfect temperature. That's what it's designed to do. Uh, which you can control with your phone, by the way. <laughs> I know. And if you are like me, the best part about your morning coffee routine is less the coffee and more almost just the ambiance of it, right? It is the mist that's rising from my cup. I love that, especially when sunlight cuts through it. <laughs> I'm alone in this. Okay, I'm alone in this. I am alone in this. <laughs> I know, so you treat coffee like, you know, a utility. For me, it's an art, and that's okay. We're different. So here's the thing about the ember. The battery. It doesn't last very long. I'm just going to be honest. The battery, unless they have a new version now, the battery doesn't last that long. And so while it says it sort of has an eternal kind of um, temperature-saving function, the reality is it doesn't really last that much longer than my normal mug. For the ember, even the mess will appear and then vanish, to use James' words, once the battery dies. Once the battery dies. See, we have emberized. We have emberized our life as much as we possibly can. And we're sort of living in the myth that we are not finding this side of the fall. We ignore death. We ignore finitude. We ignore our limits. We ignore the fall with all of our skill and with great skill. We, you know, Medical advancements certainly help. Anti-aging techniques, that helps. Funeral rituals, in a way, in our in the West, at least, diminish the offense of death. And we can try to, at least effectively, hide ourselves from it. And to ignore the reality. But sooner than later, James is here to remind you, the mist vanishes. The mist goes away. Those are the stubborn facts on the ground that sort of I am called by God to remind you of. And that James is called by God to remind you of. And so two things. Number one... Only Jesus answers the wrongness of that. Some of you are feeling like tension. Like, what, what do you mean we're just a mist that vanishes? That seems despairing. I will say, only Jesus answers the wrongness of this. With what? His resurrection. You know, Paul put it plain. If Jesus rose from the dead, he's king, we don't get a vote. If he didn't, it's all useless. All of this is pointless. Why did he do that? Because if Jesus really rose from the dead, not figuratively, really rose from the dead, it means that all who have their trust in Jesus will one day, when he returns, rise from the dead as well and have resurrection bodies in this resurrected world called the new creation in the Bible. And that alone answers the wrongness of death. Nothing else does. So Christians, of all people, can face death and the mist with more brutal honesty than anyone else in the world. Because we have a hope behind it. We really do. 
Mist does not have the final say, even as we acknowledge it, number one. Number two, on this side of his return, in sort of in between the advents, as we'll talk about in the coming weeks, we entrust our stories to God. When we're tempted to be omni in every possible way in our life, we need to look at the steam rising from our coffee mug. Ancient cultures used to remind themselves of their limits, and perhaps even this verse, by placing a human skull on their work desk. Have you seen this in ancient paintings? In paintings, medieval paintings, there would be this skull just kind of hiding out on the work desk. I'm like, that's weird. It's called memento mora, which means a remembrance of death, or remember death. And this ancient cultures understood this to keep them humble. It kept them low to the ground. It reminded them daily, as they went about their works and their plans, of what James is saying this morning. You know, we don't gratefully need a skull on our desk for this. All we need is a cup of coffee or tea. Just make sure it's not an ember mug. Although that would work too, because the ember mug battery will die. We need to be reminded of our finitude, our lifespan. That's the second reminder James graciously gives us. And then the third one is a reminder of the Lord. That's how James really ends this section with a focus on the Lord who writes our stories. You know, the reason we don't write our own stories is because we're limited. We don't know. Yes, that's true. The reason we don't write our stories is because our lifespan is finite. That's true, yes. But ultimately, the reason we do not write our stories is because it's the Lord who does so. Look at verse 15 with me. James says, Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Verse 16, As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is a sin. So James is contrasting two wills. Our will and the Lord's will. Our story that we're writing and the Lord's story. So look, verse 13 is in a way the very opposite of verse 15. And verse 15 is more or less a restatement of the Lord's prayer. Your will be done. You know, James rubs shoulders with Jesus and you're going to find out, maybe you're already seeing it. James, as we're going through it, it's almost like James is just quoting Jesus all the time. It's amazing. And it's no different here. It's really a restatement of the Lord's Prayer. Lord, your will be done. Lord, your will be done. And so verse 13 is kind of an anti-Lord's Prayer. It reverses the Lord's Prayer. My will be done. I hope you're on board, Jesus. This is what we're going to do. And James shows them that verse 13 is basically a kind of, as my mentor in college would put it, a functional atheism. A functional atheism. Because ultimately, we are functioning as if we are the authors of our stories. And God is not in that at all. And so James comes along in verse 15 and says, pray the Lord's Prayer. Better live the Lord's Prayer. Better love the Lord's Prayer. Love it. 
Because ultimately, our actions are from the Lord. That's what James says. If the Lord wills, we will do this or that. This or that covers a lot of ground, doesn't it? This or that covers everything. James says everything, ultimately, finally, is from the Lord. And then ultimately, our breath comes from the Lord. If the Lord wills, we will live. We will live, uh, James says. Now, if you go to the NICU right now, there are little babies beginning their life on ventilators. My dad's mortal life ended with a ventilator. You have lives beginning with a ventilator and ending with a ventilator. It reminds me that even our breath is from the Lord. Machines can help. Even our breath is from the Lord. If the Lord wills, we will live. Now I could get philosophical right now and talk about the difference between primary causes and secondary causes. But the point James wants us all to embrace right now is that the Lord writes our story. And when we try to write our own story, we are in a way boasting in ourselves. Our confidence, our trust, our okayness is in our best efforts. We are essentially telling God with our life, I am wiser than you, God. Which is why James can call it evil in a sin. It reverses the Lord's prayer. Now, none of us would do that, I think, on purpose, but as we examine our posture in life, I think we can notice this temptation at play. But James trains us, he invites us, not just again to pray the Lord's Prayer, but to live it. Your will be done, we say. We don't just say, if the Lord wills, as a kind of magic phrase, which would be the worst possible way to, to apply this text in your life. Okay, now I have to, whenever we make plans, say, if the Lord wills. Like a magic phrase, like sort of just almost an incantation or something. That's not what this is about at all. We want to live this phrase. We want to love this phrase, which is to say, we love you, God. We love your sovereignty. And we want to rest in it. We want to relax. We want to, as Eugene Peterson puts it, we want to make a home in your will. Every time I use this phrase, the sovereignty of God, I can tell people are wanting to run to the hills. Um, because it's been used so often in philosophical debates that just agitate. But notice how the Bible uses this doctrine. It's always brought out pastorally. I've always seen this to be true with the Apostle Paul. And James is just right alongside the Apostle Paul. He's using and utilizing the sovereignty of God in a pastoral way. This is to be soul medicine, not a mind puzzle. And that's how James uses it today. The sovereignty of God. The, the idea that, that God writes our story. It can be medicine. It can, be make, it can make us more wise. The more we rest in it. How so? Well, number one, it makes you okay. With your limits. When God is all knowing, all powerful, and all present, we don't have to be. And that is a good thing. Under God's sovereignty, we should start to celebrate our limits. 
not hate them. You've all heard of FOMO, fear of missing out, fear of missing out. Well, I recently saw a book called JOMO, The Joy of Missing Out. <laughs> Isn't that good? JOMO. That's exactly right. We need to start enjoying our limits, not hating them. I love this insight from the 20th century pastor, Charles Spurgeon. He says, instead of resenting your ignorance of the future, we should thank God for it. And here's his logic. It's really good. Quote, to know the good might lead us to presumption. To know the evil might tempt us to despair. Happy for us is it that our eyes cannot penetrate the thick veil which God hangs between us and tomorrow. That we cannot see beyond the spot where we now are. And that in a certain sense, we are utterly ignorant as to the details of the future. We may indeed be thankful for our ignorance. End quote. I think number two, it makes you okay, not just with your limits, but it makes you okay with messiness. Messiness, we become okay with it. Whose life is messy right now? Anyone? Well, we're not writing our story, okay? God is, which means we can relax in the mess. Verse 13 is so tidy. When I, when I read verse 13, it's just so tidy. It looks like a day planner in words. It's just like, this is what is going to go down. It just is. It's just what's going to happen. But verse 15 is so much more messy. And that's okay because God is writing the story. We can entrust our story to God, which makes us okay with messing this. We don't need to tidy things up. He calls on us to trust us in the daily. In the daily. And I think thirdly, it makes you okay with change. Change. So the merchants in verse 13 here have their okayness anchored in a certain future. But if our okayness is anchored in the Lord, follow me, then no matter what happens in the future, we will be okay. If we anchor our okayness in the future, when things go our way, our okayness is still not in the Lord. When things don't go our way, our okayness is, is, is crashed. What happens when our okayness is in the Lord? It just means that no matter what changes in our life, we're still okay. You know, how are you doing? You can say, I'm okay. And be honest. You can say, I'm okay, and be honest, even if what's happening is desperate. Because your okayness isn't in what's happening, it's in the Lord. When we realize that everything in our story comes down to us through the scarred hands of Jesus, I think we are better able to trust God through the change. I once heard, if we knew everything that God does, omniscience, we would probably answer our prayers in the same exact way he does. See, God is good. The scars of Jesus prove it. The scars of Jesus, I'll put it another way, prove that God is a trustworthy story writer. Because he's got skin in me. Things don't happen the way we would like it. We entrust ourselves. And this is, for many of us, the act of faith. We entrust ourselves to the goodness of God. 
I mentioned J.J. Abrams earlier. He's kind of notorious for starting a story without knowing how it went, kind of winging it. But compare J.J. Abrams to J.K. Rowling for a second. Apparently, she started her Harry Potter epic with the last chapter. She already knew before she ever started reading The Boy Who Lived, which is chapter one, how it all shake out. Who's marrying who? No spoilers, don't worry about it. Although, isn't it past the spoiler earlier time? Was that epic? But that is how God is, in a way. He knows how it's all going to end. He gives us glimpses of that ending in the scriptures. And this time I will spoil it for you. It ends in a wedding. It ends in a wedding. The greatest story ends in a wedding. You know, all stories either end in a funeral or a wedding. The story of the Bible, the story that God is writing, is ends with a wedding. Think of the best wedding re- recital. Not recital, those aren't very good. What? Think of the best wedding reception you've ever been to. <laughs> think of it. Think of the joy. That's how the story ends in the Bible. Listen to how Dostoevsky puts it in The Brothers Karmazov. And I'm going to quote this in full. I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for. And that takes childlike belief and faith. Okay? I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for. That all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man, and that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts. It will suffice. It will suffice for the comforting of all resentments. It will suffice for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity. It will suffice for all the blood that they've shed, that it will make not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. That is a childlike faith in the story writing capacity of God. We can entrust our stories to God because God entered into the story that He is writing with Jesus. And so the story that God is writing in our life may never make sense to us, but it involves Jesus. That's what we can say. And so it will end okay. It'll end well. And so let me just offer a phrase for you to consider with me in light of this passage. I've been thinking about this phrase a lot in the past few days. It's this. Walk with Jesus today. Walk with Jesus today. Whenever I think about the future and I start to tighten up in my chest and I start to rehearse imaginary worst-case scenarios, or conversely, whenever I imagine the future and I'm sort of like waltzing into it like the people in this passage, what if instead I said, Jesus, I'm just going to walk with you today. Just... I'm going to walk with you today. That's it. And that's all he asks you to do, anyway. Give us this day or not my will, but your will. 
What if your okayness was rooted in Jesus who is beside you right now? What if your okayness was there in Him, not your future? So walk with Jesus today. That's what it looks like to not boast in your arrogance, but to boast in Jesus. And so, Lord, would our boast be in you? Would our boast, would our trust, would our confidence, would our okayness be in you? Let's walk with you today, Jesus. Continue in Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.